Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. Today is somewhat of a bittersweet Sanctity of Life Sunday for me. As I was telling some of our friends visiting with us today before we started, uh, we're a pro-life church, unashamed about that. We observe Sanctity of Life Sunday every year. And um, this is the one in which we observe the 50th anniversary of the Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision that legalized abortion in the United States. And I said bittersweet because it's sweet in that the Dobbs decision this past summer from the court overturned Roe. My amen. Finally, in answers to prayer and a lot of hard work, it uh, turned the question of abortion back to the United States, literally, one by one. And that process has begun. A number of states are regulating, restricting abortion as never before since Roe. Some have done so without ex- exceptions, acknowledging the dignity, the value of every human life as image bearers of God even with laws that cover their life from the moment of conception. Lives are being saved. And I know that a number of abortion mills have shut down. That's sweet. But then we have other states that are radically pro-abortion and expanding abortion rights on demand for any and every reason imaginable, even up to the point of birth in some cases and after the point of birth. That's bitter. So our work is not done, far from it. In fact, I posted the fact that every Democrat in the House of Representatives of the United States voted no on the Born Alive Act that would have protected babies born in the process of an abortion. Did you get that? They called that initiative of law extreme and anti-choice. How is that even possible in a civilized nation? I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. But our text does. Our text tells us we're not as civilized as we think. What I want to deal with is the why question for all this. Because we want Christian disciples to be disciple makers that are better prepared to speak to the lost among us and this moral issue from a well-grounded biblical and theological framework, okay? So we have to start by asking this question. Deep down, really, why do we have abortion? Why is this a thing? I mean, science and scripture both have told us for quite a while now that the preborn are human beings in every fundamental sense of the word human. Therefore, It's logical. Abortion is the shedding of innocent human blood. It's the taking of another life. Usually in a planned or premeditated way, usually in our legal system, that would be called murder. And most people do reject the idea of murder. And what's really uncivilized and wacky in all this is that if a third party takes the life of an unborn child in the womb of its mother, They are charged with a crime. But if the mother and the parents choose to kill the baby, it's not. Same thing takes place. So how and why does the murder 
of unborn babies happen as much as it still does today, which is anywhere from 800 to 900,000 preborn babies a year. It's always been an issue, but never to this extent. And it's never been an acceptable thing, much less legal in this country before Roe. Uh, you may not know, if you don't know your history, that it was illegal in the laws and customs of just about every nation around the world, aside from our country, for several thousand years. So what happened to it? With all the knowledge and technology that we have, have we gotten dumber on this thing? Well, you might say, Pastor, some families, pregnant mothers, they have some legitimate reason for getting an abortion. And you do have rape and cases of incest and risk of life, all that. I get that. Those are difficult circumstances that we should sympathize with and love on those mothers and those families in that situation. In fact, that's what the pro-life community we call crisis pregnancies. But there's a clearer picture of it I want you to see. Wanda Cohn, who's now the director of a pregnancy center here in Florida, often hears from women all these different reasons why it would be better to get an abortion than let their babies live. And uh, in 2017, she talks about a lady, Tammy Hayward, that came to her and told her that she was 41. The pregnancy made her sick constantly. She was struggling financially, and her father was a drug addict. The father of the baby was a drug addict. And so Cohn saw in Hayward... The same desperation that led her to have an abortion herself at 17 years old. And she said it was the inability to look beyond the present crisis and seek God's will. In choosing to have an abortion, she said she was being wise in her own eyes. That's the clarion call of the book of Judges, by the way. Thinking that she knew better for herself than the God who created her. Just like that woman Hayward thought all the reasons she had justified her desire for abortion. So that's why, to Cohen, she put it this way. Abortion, listen carefully, in her own words, is a symptom of a problem with the heart. The problem being the heart doesn't love or obey its creator. And in essence, that's what this Romans 1 text is all about. This passage of Scripture has become an often quoted one recently when we try to figure out what has happened to the United States of America. Every time I read Romans 1 or I hear it preached, I think of our country. Western society, for that matter, especially over the last generation or two. In this great letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome, we're in a section that starts in chapter 1, goes through chapter 3, where God wants us to totally understand deeply the seriousness of the evil, the sin in the nature of man that exists in this world. And it's in our hearts. He wants us to know the why so many societies of people are separated from him and his love and what's going to come from that. And so from verse 18 of the chapter, you find that God is angry, literally angry with cultures and nations of people that choose to ignore, to reject, or what it says, suppress, hold down the truth about him and the light that he's given to all men and women in order to find him. He's revealed himself, look at it this way, he's revealed himself in a general way to every one of the 8 billion people on this planet. That he is real and that he's true. 
But there are millions of people that won't acknowledge God in that truth, but they would rather ignore than reject Him. And what happens as a result of that, according to this text, is that God is going to express holy, righteous anger, or what's called here wrath, against them. But not in the way that you may be thinking. There are different types of wrath. But this text gives us one of the clearest explanations of why we're in the mess we are in this country. And we're experiencing the moral and sexual revolution that we're in, which obviously includes the sin of abortion. So we're going to explore the root of the revolution and how we should respond to it. That goes deeper than just trying to put a Band-Aid on our nation to stop the bleeding. Okay, This message is going to aim to equip you to do some heart surgery and replant the root that might end this revolution in our lifetime, Lord willing. So I'm going to break this text, this idea, down in just two parts. You want to know what this root of the revolution is? It's all about just two things, ingratitude and idolatry. Ingratitude and idolatry. That's the root of the revolution, and you're going to see why here. Starting with the ingratitude in Romans 1.21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, give thanks to Him, but they became futile or empty in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened or confused. Think of it that way. They fail to glorify or worship God. This is where we start. You know, there are some people, this is not a newsflash, that are smarter than others, that are more clever than others, and that are wiser than others, but they don't, they don't acknowledge the existence of God and His sovereign rule over their lives and everything else. And so the Word tells us here, they're not very smart after all. In fact, their thinking is, literally from the Greek, gives the idea that their thinking is worthless. Their reasoning is pointless. Get this. It means they're literally stupid. Atheists are stupid. That sounds harsh, Bernie, doesn't it? Yes, but that's the word. When it says they're described as fools, the Greek word translated in English is the word we get moron from. You reject the existence of God, God's saying, you're a moron. Really? Because you're rejecting that which is obviously known to you in your mind just through looking at creation and in your conscience. And when you see that phrase that they knew God, the wicked knew God, it means to know him by personal experience even. And this context then, it refers to having a personal knowledge of the existence of God and even some of his attributes. Not saving knowledge, but it is a knowledge, whether you want to admit it or not, that you know God deep down personally. That's what this chapter is about. It's talking about the universality of sin and the rejection of God. And so it says that people are without excuse. And that's why, as I often say, I'm saying it here again, God doesn't believe that atheists exist. Someone tells you that they're an atheist, you're talking about the faith. I don't think there's proof for God. I don't think God exists. They're liars. According to Paul in Romans, from the Word of God, they know God in creation and conscience, but they won't honor Him or thank Him. They suppress that truth that they have in their heart. It's just a cover, okay? 
And it gets so bad that in verse 28, it says that as a result of that suppression of truth, God gave them up to a depraved or debased mind. That means their brains don't literally work right. It means they can't think straight. And that leads to wrath. Or as how Psalm 14.1 puts it, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. It's pretty clear. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. When we say that, it's not that you don't do good things. We don't do good things here and there. It means relative to God, there's no one that does good. Listen, we have, we have younger children in our church today in Christ, and they are smarter, and they know way more about God and truth than unbelieving Ph.D. professors and scholars. You know that? And you know why? Because they know the gospel and they trust in the God of the gospel. And those people don't. Says the ball in the word, the natural man does not discern or understand the things of God because they are spiritually discerned. So the natural man, the problem is he doesn't make much out of God and his glory and refuses to thank him for his grace, even his common grace, even that which enables the natural man and woman to eat and breathe and live. It's just total ingratitude towards God and his provision. So, what is the consequence of what we might call practical atheism? Well, it's the root of the revolution in idolatry, which you would see in verses 22 and 23. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images re resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. See, if you don't worship God and give him glory, you're going to worship and glorify someone or somebody else or something else. Something of your own imagination. And the reason why is very simple. You and I were made to worship. It's who we are. Second Kings 17 talks about when God's people, Israel, they succumbed to the peer pressure and the influence of the customs of the pagan nations that surrounded them. And they were warned by the Lord not to do that, not to sacrifice and serve idols like the Baals or Molech. And it says there, And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord, their God, things that were not right. And it goes on to say there that they would not listen but were stubborn. And then get this, And they burned their sons and daughters as offerings, and used divination and omens, and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. People, what do we call that today? Abortion. Infanticide. Child sacrifice. It's the shedding of innocent human blood as a form of idolatry. That's what it is today. Just in a different way and for different reasons. Prostitution, as you heard, was part of that idolatry back then, like sex trafficking is today, which is a major segment of the abortion issue. And what's the result? It's said there in that same chapter, Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight. God was angry. That's Romans 1 talk. I can't, 
I can't even begin to fathom, I can't even begin to tell you how angry our Lord is with this country, with people that not only ignore him and reject him and deny him, failing to honor and thank him, but then as a result of that, they incur his wrath by sanctioning, legalizing the murder of 62 million preborn children over the last 50 years. That's a holocaust. And there are people in eternity that will pay for it. They will. The psalmist laid that out as the root of this evil when in Psalm 106 he calls child sacrifice a sacrifice to demons. So the link in the chain, the root of abortion is not what you think. This circumstantial reason, this influence, this, that. It gets down at the end of the day to idolatry. Idol worship. The desire to love sin and self more than the Savior. Or, simply put, to worship an idol or idols, including ourselves and our gratification, is a devotion to, an affection for, or a passion for anything and anyone other than the God of glory. Let me repeat that. So you know how this fits in, and people that you know and love may fit in here, and hopefully not you. Idol worship, idolatry, is a devotion to and an affection for or a passion for anything and anyone other than the God of glory. Or to put it another way, in essence, it's saying, listen, God, I know you mean well, but I'd rather be in charge of my life. I'd rather you come off the throne and you put me on it. Or to quote the classic rock song, go ahead with your own life, leave me alone. It's what we've always said. The root of the revolution, by the way, goes back to the fall, people. This is as old as man. Idolatry is rooted in the first sin ever committed. You may not think of it that way. Genesis chapter 3. I'd recommend you go there and make a note of this. Genesis chapter 3. The fall is happening. Verse 4, you know, there was the command not to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge. God's trying to protect his people. But the serpent said to the woman in verse 4, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, thank you, Eve, and that it was a, listen, a delight to the eyes, note that word, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave same, some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. We're not dealing with anything new here. Idolatry is all about desiring something other than God or more than. When our first parents fell to the temptation of playing God, worshiping themselves, the body, creation rather than the creator, like the devil did himself, by the way, leading to this whole mess, because that was a quest even for him of self-gratification, self-autonomy, fleshly pleasure, sin and depravity there began to take root. And it flowed into the heart of mankind, beginning with a sense of pride that led 
to idolatry because your pride will lead to idolatry. So you see in the next chapter, even in Genesis, Cain killed Abel, the first murder of human history. He kills his brother over his own idolatrous sacrifice to God that God didn't accept. Cain didn't like it. He was jealous of his brothers, and he killed him. And this is why Jesus tells us also that people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So what is the consequence then of that going to be? What is God's wrath against the wicked and the unrighteous going to look like? Well, three times in this chapter, Paul says, I want you to see this, that God gave or turned people over to their natural, wicked, evil inclinations or lusts from their idolatry to just flat out rebel against him. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. Verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. You see, people that hate or reject God and his authority over their lives, folks, they still have to deal with that innate desire that they have that the Lord gave them to worship something, someone, or themselves rather than God, because the Lord created us to worship Him, to glorify Him, make much of Him. We're wired that way. But this is what ultimately only God can satisfy our hearts, more than anyone or anything else. But because of flesh and the sin that still dominates us, lost people in particular, they cut that wiring, and what they do is they trade giving honor and praise and glory to God to praise and honor other things and their stuff. Our flesh wants to change the object of our worship. God is not the favorite subject, object for idolaters. He's not enough for them. Our own gods are our favorite objects of worship. In the historic biblical context, so you know these words, what they mean, the pagan rebellious Jews, they worshiped images or statues of idols that were symbolizing animals and the elements above or below or mythical gods like Zeus for the Greeks. But today in modern or contemporary society, we just do it a little bit differently. We don't fall for those things anymore. So what do we idolize or what do we worship today? What do we love more than the Lord? We'll be practical. Sometimes it's their families, trophy children, jobs, careers, homes, cars, money, treasure, toys, celebrities. And the big idol today I see is entertainment. This country is obsessed with entertainment as a nation. See? There are people that say, you know, we talked about this in the BRP moment. They don't have time to read the Bible or attend a Sunday service regularly or a midweek community group meeting. But you talk to them and they'll tell you they have the time or will make the time to sit in front of the tube and binge on a TV streaming show for hours at a time. Something's out of sorts there. And there are some whose idolatry is making a good thing the ultimate thing like hobbies or activities, which those things are good in and of themselves. They are bad 
when they replace time and devotion to the Lord in his kingdom. So then what? What happens? Paul gives us a purpose clause here. It's a cause and an effect of what God does to a people, maybe a nation that denies the truth deep down and they ignore it and reject him in their unrighteousness. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. This is what we call God's wrath of abandonment. This is when God decides to let a people go. He abandons them to their most sinful desires and lusts deep down in the heart where few people are let in and can really see. It's as if the Lord tells us, America, you want all this? You got it. When this happens, the Lord removes his restraining grace from us. The grace from his hand that literally stops us from being as wicked and evil as we can be. And that's why when he removes that grace and lets idolatry go the way we want it to, you see some of the things that are happening around our world every day. Mass shooting massacres, murder at schools, terrorism, war, abuse against women and children, the most vulnerable amongst us, rampant homosexuality, all kinds of perversion, where a growing number of people today don't even know whether they're male or female, and all of that leading to abortion on demand. Right? God was controlling all of that with common grace for a while. Idolatry has gotten so bad, he's saying, that's it. You're almost virtually on your own. It's a moral revolution, which has become a sexual revolution. And we are in the midst of the greatest immoral revolution in American history. I don't think that can even be debated. We are a morally filthy nation. And who can dispute that? Really. I mean, it's obvious. Just consider what's on television and the movies that we watch, the music we listen to, the conversations that we hear in public. I never cease to be amazed by the gross, filthy, coarse language I hear people speak all over the place. My wife and I talk about it. We'll be, we'll be like in a crowd of people, and we'll hear a woman just firing off the grossest curse words. And it, it's words that never would have been uttered with an earshot of anyone on video or in person as recently as just 15 years ago. It's just another sign of how far we've fallen. So what this text teaches us today, as I said five years ago when we preached and went verse by verse through the book of Romans, God has abandoned America because we, America, abandoned him first. I'll say that again so it really sinks in. Has God abandoned us? Yes, because we abandoned him first. God's always done this, even with his own over history, including the nation of Israel. When the idolatry led them to split as a nation in a cultural then a civil war that was military, it says in Isaiah 63, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit, therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. God turned away from his people. That's the Romans' one idea. And he fought against them, his own people for a season, until the time would come that they would repent 
and turn back to him. People will make an idol out of sex, folks. Don't be surprised by that. We know from the ancient religious rituals that happened at the pagan temple in Ephesus and in Corinth. Unmentionable things took place as religious rituals. And to be real, folks, 95% of all abortions don't happen due to those rare tragic cases of rape or incest or the physical health of the mother. The overwhelming majority of abortions are a modern method of birth control. Unplanned pregnancies is what they are. It's basically it. And it's more often, because we have this demographic information, it's young adults, younger, 18 to 30, who say, in essence, we've partied, we got pregnant, we got to do something about this because we don't want to take responsibility for this child and care for this child. And the father, often acting as a coward, exerts the pressure on the mother to do that. Hey, I'll, I'll pay the five $600 to get that done. You see, because for idolaters, sexual freedom is more important than freedom from sin and from the freedom to even live for the unborn. That's wicked. It's the idolatry. It is the selfishness that says, I value my time, my lifestyle, my stuff, even more than somebody else's life. No wonder the prophet, on behalf of Israel, asked, Oh, Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? This text tells us, because God gave them up. He gave them over. And that phrase in the original Greek had a double meaning. It was not only the idea of permitting something, but it became a metaphor to deliver somebody up to custody, to be judged, to be condemned or punished. Sounds like us. So it's a both hand. And in response, the people putting away the truth that they know about God and rejecting his honor with ingratitude, the Lord just turns them over to what? To vile, degrading things, unclean things with each other's bodies. That's abortion and everything that comes from the LGBT movement. And there's more letters being added to that acrostic of the revolution, more than you can imagine, and that list ain't going to stop. Anytime soon, I don't believe. Outside of God's intervention, I don't believe there's any stopping. And, of course, all of that includes the murder of preborn babies. But what I just shared with you, those sexual behaviors and that dysfunction, that's not the main point here of all this. All of those are signs and symptoms of the real sin. What is the root of the revolution? Back in our text, the end of it, verse 25, it's because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, the lie of temporary pleasure, self-gratification, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. It was blessed. Amen. We, as a people, the unrighteous, they just love sin and self more than the Savior. Unless God intervenes. It's that simple. The point is we're idolatrous God-haters until we're born again. So you might know where we're going here. When it comes to abortion and the rest of the sexual revolution, we need to become theologians. We need to become preachers with lost people that are locked into 
their idolatry. You can't focus on the sexual immorality and the abortion sins alone. There's a place for political legislation, policies. We support those. That's all good. In and of itself, that's not what's going to get it done. They're great sins. They should be called out with the truth and love. But some people are just going to argue back and forth with you on the personal privacy side of it. And values are subjective, you know, and there are crisis pregnancies and all that. How do we deal with that? I mean, yes, Psalm 82.3 says, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Let me ask you, is there anybody more afflicted and destitute than the unborn? I mean, people today want social justice, right? Well, that starts with the right to live and breathe, doesn't it? That's why this is the moral issue of our times. You say, I, I, you're a single-issue voter. You're a single-issue Christian. Yes. What, what's more important than living and breathing, can somebody tell me? Why would there be any other issue, basically? So, yes, we, we pray for opportunities to talk about this. It's the moral issue of our times. We talk about the humanity of the unborn. You've got to make that case for that, for people to treasure human life from womb to tomb so we're consistent. Again, there's just a three-point goal we want people to do. We want people to, number one, reject abortion, yes. Number two, experience God's forgiveness, the hope of the gospel. And number three, we want to rescue the innocent, one baby, one mother at a time. We can rescue the lost in different ways, by the way. In fact, our church, as a house of refuge church, as it's called, partnering with Love Life, we're going to be launching our adoption week this year and the new 40-week journey of hope with Love Life in just three weeks on February 12th, okay? That's a Sunday, and our church is going to learn more about our role in the pro-life movement and the community then. We're going to pray for this issue that week in our weekly prayer meeting, and we're all going to be invited to prayer walk together in plantation on that Saturday, February 18th. But as I close, I want to remind you, this Romans 1 text is telling us the root of abortion and the sexual revolution is idolatry. So the biggest impact that we can make relates to the second goal I just said, God's forgiveness, the hope of the gospel. An abortion-minded mother and family or a homosexual man or woman, they need to be told that the biggest sin is not their lifestyle or not necessarily even their choice to take the life of the unborn, as big as that is. Their biggest problem is they don't like God. They don't love God. They don't glorify Him. They don't honor Him. They don't thank Him. Perfect example of that, I'll give this quote again as I have before. Rosaria Butterfield is a woman who is a Christian author, speaker, a wife, a mother, and a former lesbian activist. She said this, to be clear, I was not converted out of homosexuality. No, I was converted out of unbelief. She got it. She gets it. She said, I didn't swipe out a, life, a lifestyle. I died to a life I loved. That's idolatry. The issue is at the beginning of this text we talked about. So we have to proclaim, we have to preach to sinners that their greatest sins against God are ingratitude and idolatry. 
the specific lifestyle thing is secondary. Because it's the same thing for every unbeliever that lives and breathes on planet Earth. It's their failure to honor and glorify God, to thank Him for everything in their life, and to devote their life to Him. That's what damns them, the failure to do that. And then they need to believe and trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. It is then and only then that their sins of sexuality and abortion are going to be forgiven. And then they're going to be healed and restored. Because they're born again, and in their new life in Christ, they're no longer going to want to do that. Folks, this is how to be free from idolatry at last. Jesus Christ. That's the heart surgery that the Lord will do for people if we'll be faithful to share this message. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, who came to Christ from a lifetime of idolatry, he put it this way, because you and I are in it, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the middle of verse 9, he said, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Practice is the key word. Nor thieves, nor the greedy. There's like five sins that follow. Will inherit the kingdom of God. And listen, and such were some of you. Past tense. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and by the Spirit of our God. That's what God does for people in Christ. Listen, people, aren't you angry about the state of our country and our nation in the midst of this revolution that we're in? Do you want revival? You want revival? Or is it just me? Right? We sang about it. But here's the deal. Revival is a gospel issue. You can't create revival. You know, those old sawdust things that used to happen back in the day. We're having a revival tonight. No, you don't have a revival. God creates revival. When people, as we sang today, confess and repent of their sin, that's keeping us from the near presence of God, and we turn back to Him, and we pray, and then we hope for revival, which is an extraordinary movement and work of the Spirit that produces extraordinary results. An extraordinary movement of the Spirit that produces extraordinary results. can't be manufactured. It only will follow the repentance and faith of people. Like one historian wrote, revival is God among his people. So if you want nationwide revival, you got to preach prayfully the gospel so that more people will become God's people, and then he would come and be among the people in his presence. That's what will bring revival. Here's a little secret. You want revival in this country? We need more Christians. It's a grassroots, it's a grassroots movement. It's not a protest. It's not a march. I saw the March for Life this weekend. It was great taking a stand for life. It's not going to produce revival in this country. Sorry. People becoming Christians are born again. The more born again a people, the more born again a nation looks. That's it. So we need to get busy this year. 
in making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. That's our Great Commission mission. And with God's help by his will, he will cut out the root of the revolution. Amen? Let's pray as I join the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk's prayer for God's people and that nation from chapter 3. Lord, we've heard about you, and we are filled with awe by your amazing works. But in this time of our deep need, help us again as you did in years gone by. And in your anger or your wrath, remember your mercy. And as we sang this morning, Lord, breathe on us again and send us revival. And Lord, for anyone in this room listening that is not sure that they are a part of your kingdom, that they are worshiping you, that they would worship you rather than worship idols of our own imagination. You would save them, Lord. You would save them from the judgment, from your just wrath that comes to them should they dishonor you, not glorify you, not thank you. So I pray you would change hearts, Lord, in this room and those that will listen later, and that those people will be awakened to what revival is. They'll be awakened in their hearts to turn from their old sin and self and trust in Jesus alone as the God-man, God in the flesh, to forgive them of their sins just by faith and just by your grace. And maybe someone in this room wants to, in our fellowship time as we have refreshments and we talk, and they'd want to share with us their desire to know you, to make that commitment to follow Christ. We pray that happens today, Lord. In Jesus' name, we pray and all God's people said. Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on us and to learn how to give towards our media ministry, please go to our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's christcomchurch.org. And look for the Giving tab at the top of the homepage.